0: Mark chapter 7. If you're one of those people who likes to read ahead, there's a part of you that might experience 1 through 23 here in chapter 7 as a little bit of an island. It's kind of hard to understand context. And if you love context, if you love to see the line through everything, you're going to fight a little bit for this. It almost feels like Mark just kind of uh, drops this thing there and you don't know really how it in fact, one writer that I read said that it has no obvious connection to the, any preceding episode. So, so people smarter than me have concluded it doesn't fit, but, but there's a part of me that thinks I've got a reason why Mark put it here, and it's chapter 6, verse 56, if you look at it with me. Now, he has just healed, um, and he has just walked on water, and he's just fed the 5,000, and this is what it says. And wherever he came in villages, cities, and countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. I think the preeminent reason, one of my points is, is I think Mark put this here, because of the growing popularity of Christ. I mean, Jesus was totally huge at this point, and multitudes were coming to him. If there's anything to create an insecurity and a leader, it's having the threat of another leader. And so Jesus now is growing in his influence, growing in his word, and these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, hear of it, and they, they, they don't like it, okay? So I think that's why these 23 verses, there is now this confrontation with those leaders. Now, cl- clearly there, there are these Pharisees and scribes to confront Jesus about how he neglects the traditions, the traditions of the elders, but I also think they're a little bit about his growing influence. So I think we can fit the context in there. So in this small encounter here uh, with the Pharisees, Jesus confronts, one, the traditions and religion of man. He teaches a very um, important, I, I would call it the most important doctrine, the doctrine of, of, of sin. And he points to the need that only the gospel can fill in this section. So I've taken some time to break it up in three sections, and I have to confess something before we get into it. I fought for this one this week, Um, and I'll explain why in a minute. Um, My my week goes like this. I I gave my word to God. We kind of made an agreement, him and I did, that I would work really hard Sunday through Thursday, but by Thursday afternoon, whatever is going to come out is done. Well, I sat in the chair from 4 in the morning to 6 in the afternoon on Thursday, and nothing came out. Whatever that is, hell on earth probably, I, that's what I experienced on Thursday. And I got kind of mad, to be honest with you. I went home, threw my books in my bag, and kind of ticked off. Didn't look out on Friday. Finally, Saturday morning, I said, well, I better figure out something to say. Um, and it's not that I didn't read. I read a ton. It was just that, here's, here's why I think it was so hard. You could preach this message I could teach this message in two minutes, that the so what to this is obvious. I'll read it to you, and you go, got it, what's next? And there's a part of me that thinks sometimes, you know, we're trying to unearth some profound thing, but there isn't anything more than the obvious that's profound in this passage, and I think that's probably why um, it took me so long, or or maybe God just wants to beat me up with this in in a real sense, and you know this, that preachers who uh, hear their own sermons are better preachers, so that's part of it. So anyway... We're going to break this up in a simple way, three, three sections, three particular events. And uh, the first one is the, the problem as far as the Pharisees see it, and it's in the first five verses of chapter seven. So let's read this together and we'll kind of pick it apart. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there, there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, here's the question, why do you disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? This week, I went online and I tried to find out if there was a number, how many laws exist in our country. <laughs> no, no luck there, because they're adding laws daily, right? It's impossible to, to, get it, to get a number on it. But here's what I did learn from some of these articles, that everybody in here is breaking the law right now. There's so many of them that somewhere we're crossing the line somewhere. And I, I think it's, uh, it's because of all these regulatory laws that, that nobody knows about, nobody cares, right? So it didn't used to be that. You back up a couple hundred years. Most of the law was experienced in the common law crime. Things like you know, theft and murder. And, and everyone, by the way, with this law knew what was wrong. Okay? It was obvious. You don't do that. Well, now there's this massive quantity and growing quantity of these regulatory uh, crimes that, that most people have no idea exists. So therefore, they're probably crossing the line as we speak. So for instance, I, I, I discovered this. I, I sort of knew it, but forgot it, but if you happen to be going, walking down the sidewalk and you find a feather and you pick up a feather and take it home with you, if it happens to be a bald eagle feather, you've just committed a federal crime. Now, here's, here's what I know. I don't know how many years ago, they were, bald eagles were on the uh, endangered list, right? But they're not on the list anymore. They just didn't change the law. Back then, they made that law so that people wouldn't, you know, kill a bald eagle, I guess. But now, now they're fine. They're doing well. But if you have a feather... Federal crime, and I'm going to turn you in, so don't (laughs) tell me. Here's the point. I, I tell all that silly stuff for one reason. Mankind is really good at making up rules. In fact, when it comes to this subject matter of God, I think history proves that we would rather respond to God based on laws and rules than love and faith. I think if you look in the scriptures, if you read the Old Testament, if you watch Israel, if you see your own heart, if you go down the street to so-and-so church or whatever, you're going to see that people prefer ladders. They prefer systems. They prefer a way to measure how well they're doing or how, how much work that has to be done in their life. We, we are that kind of person. And so here in Mark chapter 7... Jesus has that type of conversation with the Pharisees and the scribes, and it's over this issue of rules and religion and, as he calls it, traditions of the elders. And and this tension, by the way, between the religious leaders and Jesus doesn't surprise us, does it? We've been walking through this gospel for, for weeks now. And in chapter 2, we saw that specifically regarding the Sabbath day and how to keep the Sabbath day and not work on the Sabbath day, they made accusations against Jesus and his men because they would walk along and pluck grain, uh, kernels of grain, uh, and eat it on the Sabbath, and they considered that harvesting, and you don't do that, and that was one of the confrontations. Chapter 3, the, the religious elite confront Jesus and, and, and basically accuse him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. There's, there's, there's conflict, constant conflict that's, that's happening here. But here in chapter seven, um, we have another appearance by what I would call the legal specialist who've come down from the home office in Jerusalem to confront Jesus about what he's not doing, okay? In other words, these these guys are are what I would consider theological hitmen. They're, They're not there to ask a question or get an answer. That's not their intention at all. They're what I would say religious lawyers, all right? They know the law. They interpret the law. They they study it. They they have it all around them, and so there is no doubt in this particular circumstance that these religious um, lawyers have shown up because someone someone in the proximity of Jesus and his disciples is reporting to home base and saying, "Man, he's he's crossed this line too. He keeps doing that, and we wouldn't do this, but they do it all the time." And so somehow this word has got back to them, and they're there, and they're not there to get. An answer to the question, they're there to condemn Jesus. So here's the problem as they see it in, these, in this beginning five verses. It's that Jesus and his disciples are not washing their hands as they should. Huge crime. They're not washing their hands as they're supposed to. Now, if you back up several weeks, I talked to you about the oral traditions of the, of the rabbis, right? It, it's the Mishnah. Now, let me contrast, compare that to the law, to the Torah, the five books, the Pentateuch, the five books of the first five books of the Bible. This this law, this written instruction was the absolutes. The Mishnah was the interpretation of how to fulfill those things and please God. And so they made copious lists, list after list after list after list of things to do or not to do in order to keep the law that was the absolute. So the Mishnah also had in it um, this this statement that tradition was the fence around the law—that if we're going to protect God and protect His instructions, then we have to put all these particular absolutes in play in order to protect Him. Okay? So the 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 more the interpretation, the more kind of how do we do this law? The more absurd it became. Now I, I gave you a couple samples a few weeks ago about specifically work on the Sabbath—the crazy things they would invent, like you couldn't it was forbidden to look into a mirror on the Sabbath because you might see a gray hair and want to pluck it. And that would clearly be work. Everyone knows that. So you won't want to do that. If you had false teeth, you weren't to wear them on the Sabbath because if they fell out of your mouth, you want to put them back in your mouth, that would be work. Don't do that. If you had a cold and you needed to blow your nose, well, you couldn't carry a handkerchief, right? From room to room. To take care of your needs, but you could tie it around your neck or your arm or whatever, and move it that way and blow your nose. Ridiculous things! In fact, I heard uh, one particular debate they had over a, a man who had a wooden leg. If he had, a, if his house caught on fire, was it legal? Was it right? Could he carry his leg out of the house with him? Yeah. See, ridiculous things. Ridiculous um, kind of interpretations of the law. But here, the problem isn't what Jesus and his disciples aren't doing regarding the work on the Sabbath. Here it has to do with the issue of of defiled hands or uncleanliness or washing as they see it. Remember that the Pharisees had kind of an unspoken rule if some rules and laws are good, more is better. So they would just invent this stuff. And and all we have about washing, really, in the Old Testament is in uh, Exodus chapter 30, specifically, where the priests were commanded to wash before entering the tabernacle. And the only other location is, I think, Leviticus chapter 15, where if you touch someone with a bodily discharge, you were supposed to wash and clean yourself. But over the years, years and years, centuries of interpretation, the fence to protect the law kept getting taller and taller and taller and taller. It got huge. And the point where the greatest section in all of the Mishnah is about washing. 186 pages deal with how to be clean with washing. 36 pages, ladies, on how to wash dishes. <laughs> Got to get that out. So these things started hundreds of years before Christ. And they become so a part of what everybody did. In verse 3, Jesus, it's even said of, of the Jews, that that the Pharisees, all the Jews do this. This is the way it is. This is what it is to be here and this time. This is how we do things in regard to God. So it was clearly everywhere. The washing was very, very particular. In fact, the washing of hands before you eat was described as an eggshell and a half of water. And you would wash, like rinse your hands with your hands up and let the water run run to your wrists. And then you would wash your hands with your fists. And then they would rinse your hands with your fingers pointing down and the water would run off and you're clean. You're good to go. And that's, that's what they did. And by the way, there's that phrase in here, if they go to the marketplace, they don't eat unless they wash. The word wash there is baptized. So many, many writers would say that what they did when they went and got touched by the unclean world was come home and take a bath because they wanted to so desperately be not just clean hygiene wise, but clean spiritually. Because touching evil, evil's out there. Evil is people. Evil, evil is the world. And so they would, they would clearly wash from that. So here we have it. Uh, In fact, I heard of one story specifically of a rabbi who was arrested by the Romans, believe it or not. And he almost died because he kept using his ration of water for ritual cleansing. He wouldn't drink. That's how seriously these these, uh, religious folks took it. Now, with all of that as a backdrop, it changes the question in verse 5, in my opinion. If you look at verse 5, if if it stands on its own legs, you can say, well, they're just interested in why. Give us an answer. Jesus, why don't your disciples and you honor the traditions of the elders? Why aren't you washing? Well, that's after all that kind of understanding of their position, this is way more than a question. This is a judgment. This is an accusation. It should should sound to us like this Why don't you do what we do? Why don't you do what's right? You know, you're a fraud. You're perpetrating this idea that you speak for God, but you can't clearly do the, the simplest of tasks. We wash, we're clean, you're not. You're not like us. In fact, you're not good enough. That was the state. That was really what they were trying to say. You don't keep up, Jesus. Now, look at the response. This is the second section, verses 6 through 13. This is how Jesus responds to them. And he said to them, verse 6, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written... This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold on to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained for me as Corban that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. I I can only imagine how angry this, this short little paragraph from Jesus made these guys. I can only imagine hearing that what Jesus thought of what they said, how they taught, and how they live was absolutely made up fictitious. It wasn't true. In fact, that phrase, teaching the doctrine, teaching these as doctrine the, the commandments of men, you've taken what you think and raised it to the level of scripture. You've made it authoritative. And, and, and that's how you live. That's what you do. And, and just to understand how these Pharisees believed about these particular instructions, these interpretations, is, is that they promoted the idea that Moses didn't come down from Mount Sinai with one law. They came down with two. The written law, the Torah, and this stuff, the oral traditions. That's how they communicated. You want to talk about leveraging on the people authority and influence. Listen, you have to do what we tell you to do with these things because Moses brought that from God too. Well, that changes how, how heavy that feels to you or how weighty that truth is. In fact, they, they, had a, they believed that the interpretation of the law. Was, had more authority than the law itself. In fact, a, a written Jewish tradition is that it's, it's a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict Scripture itself. In other words, the laws of men have now superseded the law of God. And it's way more important. In fact, if you're going to sin, don't sin by denying these interpretations. So Jesus says three things here, and I think in a quick short fashion that assess the situation perfectly and probably intentionally boil the blood of these religious leaders who've come down to investigate him. First thing he does in verse six is call them hypocrites. The word hypocrite is the, is the word used to describe an actor in a play. It's, it's a person who is wearing a mask. It's pretending to be something that you're not. Jesus calls them out and says, you're not even the real deal. You're the pros from Dover. I can see right through you. You're wearing a mask. You're not real. First word, hypocrites. Second thing he does is he, he talks about them and says they're, they're commandments of men. In other words, saying that what they teach isn't from God at all. It isn't real. So if you want to talk about undermining, undermining the, their kind of perspective, he calls them out as a person. He calls out their instruction is made up and not from God whatsoever. And then he says, by the way, even if you wanted to please God, you're not doing it. And he uses three phrases in verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9 to make the point. In vain you worship me. It's vain worship. It doesn't have anything to do with God whatsoever. Even if you wanted it to go that direction, it's it's pointless. You leave the commandment of God in verse 8. You reject the commands of God in verse 9. I mean, you can't make the point more obvious to these men. that what they're doing, as far as Jesus is concerned, is an absolute waste of time. And it's an exposure more of their heart than anything else. My guess, it doesn't say it here, but my guess is that these Pharisees and scribes were quickly formulating in their mind every rebuttal. Jesus didn't give them that option because he jumps right to illustration. And the illustration he picks is Exodus um, chapter 20, verse 12. It is the fifth commandment of the ten. It is, it is honor your father and mother to make his point, okay? Now, it's pretty clear, that commandment, isn't it? Anybody confused about honor your father, and mother, respect, and love, and cherish, and that kind of thing? It's the idea of, in that culture, was to, to care for them, to concern yourself with their well-being. If they grew older, it was to manage their life. When they got older, it was to honor your parents, okay? But the tradition of the elders found, figured out a way to get around that commandment. So here's the commandment of God, fifth commandment, told to, to Moses, and, and so here's how they got around it. They invented this thing called Corbin. Corbin means offering, and you can see it in the text. It is interpreted here as given to God. So here's how it went down. Um, you, you would declare your money, your possessions, your property, your wealth as Corban, as an offering to God. And, and it meant that you could keep possession of that money and that property. You could live off that money and property. You could gain interest from the money. You could start raising more money. You could do whatever you want with your property because you've offered it to God. And it was meant to be given to him when you no longer are, okay? But it also meant that if your parents somehow would come to you and say, hey, we got a need, this is how it would go down. And this is, this is why Jesus has a problem with it. This is what it sounded like. Hey, dad, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Like if you'd have come to me two years ago before I declared it Corbin, I'd have taken care of you. But now, I'm sorry it belongs to God. And he's driving a Lexus. You know, that's the, the, the chariot, the Lexus. Anyway, you get the point? And Jesus looks at him and said, Listen, here's the commandment, and you've invented a way to get around this to feed your flesh. You have no intentions. You're actors. You have no intentions of, of keeping this word. So they would use that Corbin to get around the fifth commandment. And according to Jesus, it's clearly not the only way they rejected God's word. There's many such things that you do. I wish Jesus would have stopped and said what those were, too, because I would have loved to use that in a sermon. Anyway. Now, Jesus turns his attention back to the issue at hand. It's the issue of cleaning hands or ceremonial righteousness. So look at verse 14, chapter 7. This is now the problem as Jesus sees it. Pick it up in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of, the, of a person are what defile him. Of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. You, you can see why this message is easy to teach, right? No, nobody missed what Jesus is saying there. Problems are not out there. Problems not, not dirt. It's not stuff. Things don't make you sinful. Touching things don't make you sinful. Sinful isn't somebody else's problem. Sinfulness isn't because of where you've been or where you grew up or what you know or what you don't know. Sin resides in, according to Jesus, in the heart. And the heart is the issue. Okay? There is, um, in my opinion, such a defective understanding of sin in our world. And it's creeping into the church. In fact, let me just tell you something, what I really, really believe. If you don't get the doctrine of sin, you don't get the gospel. Because people think that if we intersect the story somewhere after I'm guilty, that it ends up being, add Jesus to my collection, be moral, be a churchgoer, be good, and everything will be fine. But if you skip this sin problem, this depravity problem then Jesus can't be your Lord. The gospel can't be your solution. You understand? And you're lost in your sin. You have to get what Jesus is teaching here. You have to own it. In spite of what your heart might say and your experiences might say, you have to see what Jesus is saying here. It's out of the heart sin comes. There are people who say, you know what the problem is? Education. You know, if you just, if you just give people more understanding... Or environment. Give them a better environment. They'll make better choices. They just will. They'll, they'll have no option. They'll just do better things. They, give them the opportunities. Give them the environment. Give them the education. That's the problem. Because the problem, after all, isn't me. It's out there. I do what I do because, and then you fill in the blank. I do what I do because of them. My parents, them. Uh, my lack of opportunity there. I do because of this or, or that. Or someone has hurt me here. Jesus doesn't give us that platform. He says evil comes from the heart. The heart of every person who's ever walked on the planet has a heart condition. It's a dead heart according to the scriptures. And if you were here for our Roman series, this is how the apostle Paul put it. Brace yourself. This is what he says. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands and nobody seeks God. All have turned aside and together have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's the Apostle Paul. Let's listen to God. Specifically through the prophet Jeremiah. Can't get away from this one. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it, says God. Now, that's verse 9 of chapter 17, but I love verse 10 in context. Listen to verse 10. This is how he responds to the declaration that the heart is desperately sick. I, the Lord, search the heart. And test the mind to give every man according to his ways. In other words, God is looking. And if there was any good, any kernel of good, any fraction of ability to trust or believe, any any opportunity that you needed, any kind of experience or environment that you needed that would turn into some kind of good, God is looking for. If there's any hope at all, God is trying to find it. And what he concludes is, it's just not there. There is nothing in us. There's not a part of any person you know, not your grandmother, if she's your sweetest person that ever walked the planet, not even in her exists an ability apart from God to be good. Because Jesus says it. Don't have to argue. Out of the heart of man. That's the problem. Nothing outside messes us up. It's, It's on the inside. The heart is dead, according to the scriptures. It's dead to God. It's dead to conviction. It's dead to truth. It's how Paul says it in Romans 8, it's hostile to God. In fact, it's an active deadness, which is even worse. I'm dead and unresponsive, and at the same time, I'm fighting with God. It's a pretty bad diagnosis. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. The problem is not out there. The problem is... Is, is not someone else's fault. The problem is not your experiences, no matter how horrible they may be. The problem has always been, always will be an inside job. You need to understand that. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish whatever hurt someone has committed to you. It should just tell you that, yeah, sin is in them too. And my inability to love when I've been hurt tells me that the sin is in me. My inability to forgive those who have perpetrated huge amounts of pain on me tells me the problem's in me. And if we could take your life and sort it all out and make everybody treat you the best way possible, the evil would still be in your heart. I've got a heart problem. So it is so bad that it expresses itself in verses 21 and 22 with what I would call the gory list of sin. And I thought about this yesterday. Maybe I should just teach through all these things. But then I thought, well, we'll all be depressed and go home and eat too much. So I'm not going to do that. But I'm going to talk about one of these words. And the word is the last word in the list. It's the word foolishness. Now, with all the horrible things like sensuality and evil and murder and adultery and coveting and wickedness and sensuality and pride and blah, 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 foolishness is the least of my worries, right? I mean, I suppose if I was going to complain, I I'd, I'd probably own foolishness and avoid those other things, right? but I believe it's just the opposite. I think the foundation of all the other sins comes from foolishness. If you know the word of God, David said this in in Psalm chapter 14, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And right there, you have just discovered why all these other evils happen. You have just discovered where all this failure comes from. Foolishness is the nail in our coffin. Every problem we cause and every problem caused to us comes from a denial somewhere that God isn't. He's not good enough. He doesn't love me enough. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's not in control. Whatever it is that you do and perpetrate is evil, it comes from a source of saying, you don't trust him. Let me prove my point. So why would anybody ever steal? Because fundamentally, you don't believe that God provides. Do you understand? Why do you have to fix it yourself? Because you don't believe God cares. It's a God-understanding problem. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Why would anybody ever hold a grudge or be bitter or not forgive? It's because we don't believe in the power of God's forgiveness. We don't understand how much we've been forgiven. Why would anybody choose addictions, whether it be materialistic or sexual or drugs? Why would anybody? Because we really don't believe that God is better than all things. You, you understand what I'm talking about here? Foolishness kickstarts all the other expressions of evil because the fool is the one who says, God can't be here. He's not doing this. God doesn't love like that. He's not good like that. He isn't for me. This God is some kind of distant, distracted figure, and I have to. I have to. It's his fault, ultimately. Jesus said it's a heart problem. I believe him. And if you're old enough, Everyone here knows by a lifetime of effort that you can't fix your heart. So you know what hearts do? It tries to wash its hands. Every person here has tried to be good enough or religious enough or say you're sorry enough and because we can't, because we can't fix it, we get religious. Maybe I'll I'll do this. Maybe I'll do that. Maybe I'll try harder. Religion is our answer and religion messes up everything. It, It distorts what true worship is. You can, and I don't know this, but you could come to church every week. You could put on that smile that you put on. You could open a Bible. You could sit in a small group. You can give your money, and no one would know, and it could be all plastic, not a bit of it coming from a heart of worship. Religion does that. Churches are filled with religious people. We end up caring more about what's comfortable than what God commands And so we reshape, not much different than a Pharisee, reshape what God says in order for me to be, I I can be okay here, right? I mean, I don't have to follow the actual words. I mean well. Religion means that you can fake it. Like you can control the outside, but your inside is far away from him. Jesus said of us, warned of the church or people who call themselves a part of the church, you say, God, didn't we? Didn't we perform these miracles? Didn't we speak in your name? Didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And Jesus is going to say to some, I don't know who you are. You're not mine. Religious people will be giving that answer. Religion is a masking drug that keeps us from the real problem, and the real problem is the heart. If I, religion does this, it just compares horizontally. And I suppose, I suppose, if you wanted to t- do that kind of work, you could find someone or groups of someone that you're better than. Good for you. But everyone falls short of God. It doesn't matter. Religion perverts the character of God's holiness because religion says, I can do this and please God on my own. God, you're not that holy. You're very much like me, to be honest. And religion messes that whole thing up. Listen, listen to me very carefully. You can't wash away the problem of the heart with water. You can't wash away the problem of the heart with religion. You can't wash away the problem of the heart with morality. You can't wash it away with even denial. Pretending you don't see this or it matters. You can't wash it away. There's no way to get rid of the problem that Jesus identifies here in this passage. There is no power in all the world that can make a bad heart good except the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Nothing. Jesus, God the Son, left heaven on a rescue mission for sinners like us. He willingly died in my place to satisfy his own standard for my rebellion. That's the only hope we have, that we'd be covered in his righteousness, forgiven forever, all the songs we sing, never separated from him, ever. Not by my work, not by my effort, not by my religion, not by my clean hands. His life, for my life. You see that? There is nothing more powerful than the gospel story. This is how John says it in John 3. Very familiar passage. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. This is how Paul puts it in Romans chapter three. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say amen. Here's what you need to see in this, okay? The only cure for the heart, for your heart, for the heart of the person who's hurt you, for the heart of the people you've yet to meet, the heart of your children, the only cure for the human heart is the words in these texts. It's God's faithful love, it's God's sacrifice, it's God's righteousness, and it's God's grace. The only cure, the only cure is rest. It goes completely the opposite side of religion. Religion says work. The gospel says rest. We're about to take communion. And uh, there couldn't be a more perfect visible depiction of what I'm talking about than, than that. Jesus with his men took a very common loaf of bread and a cup of wine and he made a point. And this was his point. As he broke the bread, he said, this represents my body broken for you. Jesus paid the price. Jesus' perfect life given willingly for you. He took the cup after supper and said, now this is the new covenant. Remember the old covenant? The old covenant was law and rules and traditions of the elders. The old covenant meant work really hard and be clean on your own. And Jesus says, there's a new covenant. It's called grace and it's free. Take it and drink and know that you're covered completely and totally by Christ. No more work, just Love. Just love and acceptance and holiness, not of ourselves, but from Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for the gospel again. I thank you so much that in this story, we see a good hard look at our own problem, the problem of the heart, sin. It resides in us. And there isn't a person on the planet who could say to you, that somehow they're a victim when it comes to sin. We all perpetrate sin. And it comes down to the fact that we don't believe you, don't believe in you, don't believe of you, that you're good and you're right and you're true and you know what you're doing. So God, I pray for the church right now as we get ready to celebrate your, your body and your blood. I pray, God, that you would help us remember why it is we take these elements, why it is that we're here. It's because of grace alone In Christ alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.